Um, and if you're uh, one of our new friends and you didn't even know about this till today, you are still very welcome to come and be a part with us. We would love for you to be here. And if for whatever reason you eat a lot and there's not enough, then I can guarantee some of the young ones will go without food without a problem. They don't need it, right? Uh, they have plenty of time to eat later. Um, I recently came across an interesting story. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. Um, it talks about uh, around 150 women living in Long Beach, California, and they all have some commonalities. Maybe you've heard of this. They are all Cambodian. They're all around the same age, and they are all blind. Now, because of the commonalities, the uniqueness of it, all in one area, all same age, all from the same place, and all blind, some really smart people decided that they would get some government funding and do a study on these specific 150 or so women. And they discovered some other commonalities that were unique to them that they had never seen before that was very interesting. Every single one of these women grew up under the tyranny of Pol Pot. Now, how many of you ever heard of Pol Pot? He was the prime minister of Cambodia at the time in which Khmer Rouge and all of the tyranny of which they were a part, horrific crimes against humanity committed by Khmer Rouge, they were a part of all of that. And each one, as they were interviewed, over 150 interviews, each one as they were interviewed, they all told of being forced to watch some of the worst atrocities that have ever been committed against mankind. In fact, it's so bad that uh, as I'm reading the articles about these women, I, I just thought I can't even say out loud some of the terrible things that they had to view. I mean, it was so bad. Um, here's the really interesting thing, though. Um, in each case, prior to seeing those atrocities, each woman could see perfectly. And yet, Today, every single one of them is blind. One woman said that she was hiding out in the fields trying to escape the uh, stuff that was going on around her as uh, Khmer Rouge had come into their village and was killing people, slaughtering people, just horrific things. She's hiding in the field as her daughter was taken and horrendously killed. So out in the fields, in the weeds, she's hiding and she is crying her eyes out. She said she cried for over four hours. When all of her tears dried up, face swollen, eyes swollen, she looked up and she could no longer see any longer. And that was the case again and again for these 150 plus women from Cambodia. But here was the thing that I thought was most significant. Every single woman received a uh, top of the line eye exam. And when the eye exam was finished, Every single woman's diagnosis was they should have been able to see 2020. There was absolutely nothing physically wrong with them. One electrophysiologist who helped to do these tests out of a eye institute in LA put it this way they just don't want to see anymore after having seen what they've already seen. Now, why would I tell you that story other than, of course, that we ought to be more sensitive to the people's situations around us? I tell you the story because I want you to recognize a truth that I believe is a biblical truth, which is this. There are more things going on than meet the eye. And I word it that way on purpose. 
there are things that are going on inside of people around you that you probably have no idea about. Things that you judge people. Karen and I were driving to, I don't know if it was to the funeral or to the viewing, one or the other. And the guy in front of us, this is no joke, you didn't ask her. I mean, the guy in front of us is weaving all over the road. I'm talking about going way over the line this way and way over the side shoulder so that we're thinking he's going to have an accident. What's wrong with this guy? Is he drunk? And then I began to think, what if he's got an emergency? What if something's going on and he's just trying to get past these cars so he can get to the hospital? We don't know what's going on in the heart of people. We make assumptions. We assume. And we don't know really what's happening inside. People come on Sunday mornings and they look good. They dress up. I mean, today's Gene's birthday. Could you all say happy birthday to Gene? So today's Gene's birthday. But, but as much as that might be a reason for celebration, you don't know what's going on inside of her heart. You don't know what things she might be challenged with or might be celebrating. Because the invisible is as real, if not more real, than the visible. That's what Paul says, right? He says, that which is visible is temporary. It's passing away. But that which is invisible, the unseen, is eternal. The other thing that I became aware of, I, I was thinking about it this week, is that there is stuff inside of every single person. I mean, just look around you. Look at the people around you. There is stuff inside of them that you don't know. Do you know what that stuff is called according to the Bible? It's called the glory of God. In fact, the scripture says that when you become a believer, when you make the decision to follow Jesus Christ with your life, when you make the decision to, quote John 3, to be born again, to get saved, he then begins to work inside of you. You become a new creation, as Del was just saying to me. Something happens inside of you, and you are changed, it says, from glory to glory. That's inside of every one of you. C.S. Lewis, I think it was, said something like this. He said, if we could ever see one another the way God sees us, we would be tempted to bow down and worship one another. Because there's so much glory inside of every one of us. But it's far easier for us to see all of our humanity, to see our struggles, to see our challenges, to see our faults, than it is to see glory. According to the Word of God, he has deposited in every single one of us gifts, callings, anointings, purpose for our lives. He's put stuff, he's put treasures inside of us. And then he gives us a task for the rest of our lives. He says, I want you to go on a treasure hunt. I want you to find the treasure that's in you and allow me to blow upon it, to enhance it. And it's also our joy to find treasure in people around us. Um, we tend to compare ourselves to those around us, and most often we conclude that we don't have any gifts. No treasure in me. I guess when God was handing out treasures there before eternity, you know, when he found these bodies and he had to put souls into the bodies, these little babies, I guess somehow I forgot about that announcement and I missed the line. God didn't give me any gifts. Or... We compare ourselves against another one and the problems that we face, and we say, well, I might have a gift, but it's nowhere near as significant as their gift. Their gift is much better than mine. I wish I had that gift. I wish I could do what they do. 
and we compare and we say either we don't have gifts or they're insignificant. Another problem we have is that when we think about the idea of gifts as believers, as Christians, we tend to think of gifts as related to the church setting inside of the four walls and we forget that God actually gave us gifts for far more than just right here. He gave us gifts that His light and His glory might be seen in a dark and dying world. That God would actually use you out there. So we think if our gift isn't uh, preaching, or our gift isn't prophesying, or something like that, then I guess my gift is, it just doesn't matter. Last week we started a very short series. It's only going to be three messages we started a very short series on spiritual gifts as found in the Bible. And I told you that there were primarily three different gift lists that are in the Bible. Now, there's some other gifts that are mentioned. In fact, if you added them all up together, in total, they make about 37 gifts. And I don't personally believe that that means that God is limited to those gifts and that's it. I think God is an ultimately, infinitely creative God and He can do anything He wants to do. So even though those gifts are listed, I don't think Paul intended that they would be somehow exhaustive. I think he meant that these are the kinds of gifts that God gives to a church. And last week, if you weren't here, we looked at what are called the ministry gifts. Ephesians chapter 4 says when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to the church. They're called apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. So that's five right there. He gave gifts to the church. And every single one of those Office gifts or ministry gifts are intended to be foundational or structural support gifts in order to help us to grow. Because he said the reason he gave those gifts is so that we could all be trained to do the work of the ministry. It was never God's intention that the pastor would be the paid hireling of the church so that the pastor would do the work of the ministry so that you could sit back and smile and just gloat. The intention was that all of those ministry gifts would be trainers to help you do the work of the ministry. Because in the end, sheep beget sheep. And God's after seeing that sheep are caught. The lost of the world come to know how good God really is. It's not about us putting more notches on our belt and say, wow, look what I've done. It's about recognizing that the truth of what you have experienced about God is so good you shouldn't be keeping it from other people. So God's intent is that you would have ministry gifts as support structure for the church to help to equip people for the work of the ministry. Today I want to talk to you about another set out of Romans chapter 12. You can turn to Romans 12 if you like, or if you're the kind of person who doesn't bring your Bible, or you just have your phone, go ahead and pull your phone out. I don't care what you do, doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to be looking at Romans 12 in that entire chapter, and I want to look this morning at our what are called motivational gifts motivational gifts out of Romans chapter 12. If you're there, I'm going to read verse 1. Are you all there? Okay, I'm sorry. I'll wait. Are you there? Are we there yet? Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Follow along. I beseech you, what's that next word? Therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What's it there for? What I want you to see is that for 11 chapters, Paul has been building a legal case. 
We have a lawyer in our midst today. I don't want to say anything wrong. If it's wrong, correct me afterwards, not now. Uh, but my understanding is this. The book of Romans is a court transcript of a case. I don't know if you've ever seen court transcripts. Uh, I, I, I sat in a jury box once, and uh, it was really interesting. I, I'd never done it before. I thought surely they would never allow a pastor to be on a jury but they picked me, and they picked me at the worst time of all. They picked me at the time in which my son Jeremy was going to be married. They put me on the jury, and I raised my hand, and I said, I've got a conflict. The judge said, I don't care. You're on the jury. I said, okay, I'll be on the jury, but come this time, I'm gone. He said, we'll send the sheriff after you. I said, arrest me. I'm going to my son's wedding. I don't care. Now, fortunately, he was nice enough to actually close early that day so that I could actually go to my son's wedding, which I wanted to be a part of. But this is like a court transcript. And in the book of Romans, you have a courtroom, you have a judge, and you have a prosecutor. What's missing? Oh, you have a jury, okay. You're right, we have a jury. What else is missing? Defense attorney, okay, what else? The defendant, or he's also called the plaintiff. And in this case, in the book of Romans, do you know who the plaintiff is? You are. You and I are the ones on trial. So all of Romans is a court case in which we are brought into the dock in order to defend ourselves. There are charges, there are accusations that are thrown, and there comes finally an initial verdict. The judge looks at all the evidence that's been presented by the prosecutor. By the way, do you have any idea who the prosecutor is? You would think it would be Satan, wouldn't you? And I think he does accuse us. But in this case, that's not true. The prosecutor is the law. He's looked at all of the case against you, and based upon that evidence, he declares every single one of us guilty. 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 That's you. You're guilty. And I'm guilty. He says it this way in Romans 3.23. All, all of humanity, you and I, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guilty. Irrefutable fact. We all find ourselves convicted not only by our sin, but by the perfection of the law. And please don't fall into the trap of some people I've heard preach this. It's a terrible theology. Please forgive me, but it is. I've heard pastors stand in front of people and say, the law was bad. God is good. And so God had to change things. The law is not bad. The law is perfect. Because God, who is perfect, gave us the law. The law is a reflection of God's character. But God knew in giving the law that the law couldn't save us. The law could only point out where we're less than him. And by the way, we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. The law shows us our problem, but the law was also intended, according to Galatians, to be an instructor, a teacher. The law was intended to be a signpost to not only tell us what was wrong with us, but to point us to a solution. Every good teacher can show you a problem, but can the teacher point you in the direction of a solution? 
That's a better teacher. And that's what the law does. The law says we have need of a Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. So what happens is we've all been declared guilty. Somebody steps up and says, Your Honor, there's new evidence. And the prosecution attorney says, No, 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 no. You can't entertain new evidence once it started. We had to have it at the beginning of the trial. And the judge looks at it and he says, is this new evidence going to mitigate anything? Is it going to change anything? And the new defense attorney steps up and says, Your Honor, it's going to change everything. So what's that new evidence? And we find it in Romans 3.21 if you want to look there. It says this, But now a righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law. That same law that just convicted us, also attested to a new righteousness apart from the law. Up to this point, our only hope had been keeping the law perfectly. That's the only way that you would be acceptable to the eternal judge, God himself. Keep the law perfectly. And you and I know the chances of that ever happening are pretty abysmal. We, we, we can barely get through a day. I mean, how many of you, be honest for one second. I know you're in church and you lie through your teeth sometimes, but be honest for a second. Isn't it true that sometimes your mind is like a circus? You want to think right thoughts, but stupid thoughts come into your mind? Or is that just me? Is that right? You see something and you wish you could unsee it because your mind plays tricks with you. You, you, you're, it could be as simple as driving down the road and somebody pulled out in front of me the other day and immediately a murderous thought went through my mind. I thought, I would like to just drive once. If it weren't that it would hurt my car, I'd drive it at the same speed, smack into him, say, that's what you get for it. Our whole lives, I mean, to take a couple of minutes. I, I had somebody say once, if only I could take Five minutes without one evil thing passing through my mind or heart, I would be happy. I want to tell you, that's a problem for Christians. Because we can't get even five minutes. Not even five. Unless you're sleeping and then your dreams sometimes betray you. How many of you had bad dreams? And you wake up from the dreams and you feel defiled. I don't want to dream this way. God can't even my sleep be okay. And the defense attorney who stands beside us as we are in the dock says, Your Honor, there's new evidence. There is a righteousness that is available apart from the law. You don't have to keep perfect anymore. You don't need five minutes. You have a lifetime because he has changed your very DNA. He has changed your heart. That's what he tells us in Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to take out of you your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to. He, he doesn't stop there. That would be good enough. He goes one step further. He says, I'm going to take my spirit and place it inside of you. You have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you are a believer in Jesus, God dwells within you. That doesn't mean we don't do stuff that we wish we didn't do. It means God still lives within us. And his holiness, his righteousness has been put on our tab. That's what he promises. There's a righteousness that's available to us apart from the law.
And that all sounds great. So over the next chapters, Paul develops this. And then we get into chapter 7 and 8, where we really get to the heart of the struggle that we have as Christians. The struggle is this. By the time we get there, we have a new dilemma. And it's this dilemma. There's this horrible realization going on that though we are believers, though we love God and want to do right, we seem to repeatedly find ourselves falling and failing. We say stupid things that we wish we could undo. We think things we wish we'd never think. We see things we don't want to see, and we're tempted to look back again to even confirm, did I see what I think I saw there? We act all religious in church, but the truth is this is our daily lives. This is what we live with. And that's a problem. Paul puts it this way in uh, Romans 7, 19. You can glance there if you want. He says this, that which I don't want to do. What is that? I'm sorry. That which I don't want to do. That which I don't want to do. I'm such an idiot. I keep doing it. What's wrong with me? That's not it, though. I mean, if that was it, that'd be bad enough. Paul goes on to say, and that which I want to do, I really want to. I know I ought to do it. That which I want to do, I don't do it. That's a problem for us. That description, I believe, is the description of Christians who, though they love God, they're still trying to somehow gain approval or acceptance by how we act, by how we believe, by how we behave. The truth is, back in Romans 3.21, that new evidence said it's apart from the law. It's a righteousness that is based upon how you believe God. And that's why he brings up Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God, even though his body and his wife's womb was as good as dead. He still believed God. And because of that, it was counted to him for righteousness. It was put on his record, put in his bank account, righteous. So it's about belief. But we, as believers, want to somehow show God he made a good choice in us. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how I'm behaving myself finally. I'm finally getting things together. That's all that's going on here throughout Romans. It's a horrible place to live. I can tell you, I've lived here many, many times. I fall into it, and then I jump out of it. I fall back into it. It's knowing that you're never perfect enough to be good enough. And when you do things that you think are right, I mean, you honestly, you try to do right. You make a decision. Okay, in this case, I'm tempted to do this, to get an advantage, to lie a little bit, to to add a little bit, to make myself look better, to look more important, to look smarter. I'm tempted, but I didn't do it. And there's a part of you that feels good about it. And then into your heart comes, yeah, yeah. You didn't do it good enough. You, you let that one little phrase in there. Why'd you do that? Well, I just didn't think about the wording. Yeah, you did. You let that little thing come out. You let people know that you had read this many books, and you have a library of this size, you just let it slip a little bit. You, you, you say you didn't mean it, but you wanted them to know how smart you really are without saying it. So good enough is never good enough. 
because I'm not perfect. At heart, and I want you to hear this, this was like a revelation to me. I don't know why I've never seen this before. It's like sometimes I feel like I've read the Scripture again and again, and all of a sudden I'll read it and I'll say, wow, I don't think I've ever even seen that. At heart, that thinking of God saving me, redeeming me, rescuing me, and yet me somehow having to live better to prove something to God. That thinking, I believe, is the same thinking that was in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. It's when the enemy came and said, do you want to be like God? Because if you do, you need to eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You need to know what's good and what's bad and how to do it. And at heart, it's us trying to out-God God. I want to be good. I want to be really good. I say to God all the time on my walks, I take walks, some of you guys see me around town, I take walks, and on my walks I'm saying, God, I just want to be good. Can't you help me just be good? Just even for a minute or two. Nothing wrong. Just good. And at heart, what I'm saying is, God, I want to be just like you. I want, I, I want you to know that when you picked me, you picked wisely. You, you were smart to pick me because I'm so good. And I forget, it was never about me. It was about his goodness, his grace. Uh, I, I was struck this morning. Let's see if I can find it real quick. This is an old song. We sing new songs here sometimes, but we also sing some old songs. I love this song. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. That's the grace we're talking about. The grace of God that washes it all away. And we don't have anything more to prove because He has made us accepted and acceptable according to Ephesians 1. That's what he's done for us. Finally, Paul cries in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Look at it. Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? Come on, God! Can't you do something about me? Who's going to save me? And look at the next verse. Thank God. It's through Jesus Christ the Lord. It's not my goodness. It's not how well I behave. In fact, can I say to you, although this is never God's intent, you could never do another good thing for the rest of your life. Hear me. Biblically, theologically, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you could never do another good thing for the rest of your life, and you still would find yourself in the presence of God. When you pass from this life, just like Brother Mark Hill did just this past week, when you pass from this life into the next life, you would go directly into the presence of God because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the end of the story, obviously. There's more to it, which we're going to look at. But it starts there. By the way, let me just say to you, to be clear, this is no wink-wink deal behind the scenes, behind closed doors, where God says, I I kind of like you a little bit, RD. So I'll just I'll let you off the hook today. You're you're my friend, and I know you, you screw up a lot, but I kind of like you. So I'm I'm going to take my 
cosmic erasure and erase your record and make it all good. It's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's all good. That's not what this is about. The scripture says he is not only a good and kind God, he is also a just God. Justice was fully served by the blood of Jesus Christ. The God who had never sinned took his blood and in your place, because it says the soul that sins, it shall die. That's our judgment. You have a final verdict, and then you have the penalty phase, I think. The penalty phase determines how long you're going to have to serve in prison or even worse. In our case, the penalty phase says we deserve death. But instead, Jesus Christ died in our place. So justice was fully served. Because he loved us, he was willing to pay the price, the penalty himself. He stood in the dock and said, Your Honor, they're guilty because the price has already been paid in my blood. I've already paid the whole thing. And that alone is enough for us to live constantly amazed and grateful for God's kindness. He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They're now your children. They're your sons and your daughters. But the truth is, because he comes in and he takes residence, something begins to change in us. We're not the same anymore. I'm not the same, and I hope you're not the same. How many of you would say that because you know Christ, your life has changed? Something has changed. How many of you would say something's even changed this year, in 2000 and what year are we? 2018. I went to 2016 in my mind. Isn't that weird? 2018. How many of you would say just in these seven months, don't give me an uh, Alzheimer test right now. How many of you would say that in these seven months, something has changed in you? Why? Because you can't just get saved. You get saved, saved. If all you do is get saved and you're going to heaven, you might as well die now and go to heaven. I mean, we can have a baptism service and just hold you under a little too long. Straight into the presence of God. I don't want to just be saved. I want to be saved, saved. Which means something is changing inside of me. I'm not the same anymore. Because God begins to work it out. And that brings us to Romans 12, finally. Get there, man. Romans 12, Paul begins to talk to us about how our faith in Christ begins a deep work inside of us that changes us from the inside out. In other words, the outworking of everything that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11 will now be realized in a spirit-filled, spirit-led life that we begin to see in Romans chapter 12. So why did I start this morning with a story about Cambodian women who are blind? Uh, there was no physical reason for their blindness. They should have been able to see perfectly. But here's my point. They believed the lie. They believed they could not see. Here's another interesting thing. When those women had told their story, they began to get therapy, counseling. And interestingly, several of those women who got therapy began to see because the, the lies that they had believed, they believed they couldn't see, so they couldn't see. The lie began to be confronted with truth, and it began to change their lives. 
That's why I said it to you. Many Christians believe that though they're saved, though they're born again, though they love Jesus with all their heart, they must somehow prove something to him. And Paul is saying to us, no, you've got to go back to level one. You're saved by grace and faith in that grace. What is your part? Your part is to believe God. Just to believe God. To believe what he says. Simple belief. Simple trust. That what he says is true. That he saved you. He put his love upon you. And he changed everything. Because we believe Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 6, we are so identify with Christ that we're actually in Christ. So, when Karen and I got married, it was just her and I. That goes back 38 plus years now. But what we didn't know at the time was that Jonathan and Jeremy and Jennifer were in us too. We didn't know that at the time. That only showed up with time. But they were there in us. And we didn't know that Jocelyn and Natalie and Tessa and Jillian and Will and Maggie and Caleb and Gabby were also in us. But they were in us in order that they might come forth. Well, the truth is, Paul tells us, you're in Christ. It's not just that you believe in Him. You're in Christ. He's taken you into His being. It's not just you're in Christ, but Christ is in you. The hope of glory, according to Colossians. We're in Christ. And he says, because we're in Christ, when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. Why, why, why do I say that? It's Paul's way of showing that we have died to the old way of life. The law. Where everything was measured by perfection. He says you're dead to that now. It's kind of like this. Um, let, let's say that um, John Shaw is a first driver. He drives for the funeral homes. Uh, he, he doesn't. He drives cranes, but that's good enough. It's close. It's all about lifting things and dropping things. Um, so, uh, hopefully not dropping. Um, John's driving the hearse down the road, and he's late to the funeral. He's got the casket in the back, and so he's hurrying a little bit. He gets pulled over for speeding. Who gets the ticket? John or the guy in the casket? Do you think that that state trooper giving the guy in the casket a ticket is going to mean anything to the guy in the casket? The law has no power over a dead man. Only over the living. And Paul goes to great length to say, you're dead. You're dead in Christ. Therefore, the law has no power over you. He uses the illustration of a woman who's married. It says while she's married, while they're alive, she has a loyalty and a responsibility to her husband. But once her husband dies, she's free. She can remarry. He says, in the same way, you are dead to the law. It has no power over you. But there's a new law, according to James. There's a new sheriff in town. And he comes with a new law. He says, this is the law, not of sin and death. This is the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of grace. That's what we're about today. So, all of that's there 
So, because we're dead to the law, does that mean we should do whatever we want? Paul says in Romans 6.1, God forbid. It's not what this is about. This is about you're dead to the law and you're dead to sin. That has no more power sway over you as you rest in Christ. So, what now? If we're dead to the law and sin, how then, to quote Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? How are we going to live our lives? We're now children of God, children of the Most High God. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 3, 1, Beloved, now, now, you are the children of God. So how are you going to live your life? That's what Romans 12 is about. So look at it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Got to move quick now. Whoa. Okay, I'm going to give this to you so quick it's unbelievable. Lord Jesus, help me. Okay. Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I'm going to read as fast as I used to read when I was a kid. <laughs> Lord, your word is holy. Forgive me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I used to read like this when I had to do devotions with my family. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. For we are many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Verse 6. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. Having then gifts, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Romans 12 becomes then the barometer of uh, reflecting the way in which the life of Christ is intended to work in the life of a believer. It's kind of like this is what it's supposed to look like. And you can read the rest of this chapter. He talks about how we should behave as Christians and all of that. So it's kind of like... Um, if, if you think about gifts, uh, and I've put it up on the screen for you. Can you put up that little chart there? I think I gave you, did I? Can't I see that? Okay. Can you guys see that? I call them the creative gifts given by the Father. I also call them heart gifts. Heart gifts. Uh, these, are, these gifts are kind of like the default settings of your lives. This is what God has put into you. These are probably, these lists of seven gifts are probably closer in style and type to personality types than any of the other gifts. These, I believe, are gifts that most often are already resident in you from birth. God puts something in you with the intent that when you come to Him, He's going to actually blow upon them and they're going to blow up under the power of the Spirit. They're going to, they're going to become all that they were intended to be. These are kind of like, uh, to use modern verbiage, these are the things that are your passion in life. These are the things that drive you who you are in your deepest parts. These gifts, these seven gifts, are how you're wired. These are things that work inside of you. Whether you like it or not, this is kind of who you are. It comes out. Um, you, you, you go into a room and there's all these people there and there's no titles, no offices, nothing like that. But somewhere, somehow, you're going to already figure out who's in charge because it's in them. It's what's inside residing. That's kind of how these gifts function. So I want to I give these without any clear sense of uh, hierarchy. I'm just giving them in the order that Paul gave them. So I want to look at them real quick. We're going to sort through this so fast. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
This is going to have to be really fast. Uh, prophecy. Look at prophecy first. Uh, the word is propheteia in the Greek. Propheteia, for those of you that like that. It means to declare or to speak forth. It's helping people to see God's heart for their lives in the situations they're facing. In other words, this is not about you standing up in the church and saying, thus saith the Lord as bombastically as you can to prove how spiritual you are. In fact, I teach often that you can actually give a word from God that is prophetic in nature without ever saying, thus saith the Lord. You don't even have to attach God's name to it. You can just say, this is what I am sensing. This is what I feel in my heart. And if people have a heart to hear God, they will hear God in your words. So this isn't about you somehow uh, showing how spiritual you are or how uh, verbal you can be. This is solely about you being able to help people to see and to hear God's heart for their life situation, whatever that might be at that time. It's, it's making sure that people understand where God is in the mix. What is God saying? What is God doing here? I have a friend right now who is um, 50, 54, 55, something like that. Uh, he lives out west a little bit, Midwest, and uh, he lost his job about a um, year and a half, two years ago. He's been without a job. He is beside himself. And I constantly want to bring the conversation back to this. Okay. My friend, what is God doing in you in the midst of this? I can't change your job situation. I don't have a job to give you. I can't help you find another job that you're going to be okay with. But my question is, what is God saying in the midst of this? What is God doing in the midst? And that's kind of what a prophetic person does. I'm not claiming that's prophetic. I'm merely saying that's the kind of thing. They say, what is God saying to you through this life circumstance. And they might even help you to see it. They might share it with you. But it is all about, it's not about telling the future. It's about declaring God's heart right now for the situation. So that's kind of the prophetia. Another way to see this, by the way, that I think is good is that uh, a, a prophet kind of person is uh, kind of like a seer. They're able to see the invisible next to the visible. And they're able to say to the visible, this is what the invisible is doing and what it's about. Um, this is, by the way, never about using your gift as a hammer or a weapon of some sort to pound people down. It is sharing life and love of God with people. Very simply. So that's prophetia as quick as I can do it. Number two, ministry is the word diakonia. Diakonia. It means rendering aid or assistance to others. It's about waiting on tables. It's a waiter or a waitress. Um, it's the word that is used for deacon, diakonos, deacon. That's what this is about. It's like the Martha gift. It's a willingness to serve others and to see that their physical, practical needs are met. This is not theoretical. These people are like the hands and feet of the church. When they see a need, they want to meet a need. Like what Kathy was talking about this morning. It's not, it's not enough just to say, James put it this way, it's not enough to say, if somebody comes to you and says, I'm cold and I'm hungry, to say, go and be warmed and filled. That's not enough. You have to find a way to help them to do that. That's what this ministry is about. Um, it's not about being flashy or visible. 
It's often about being behind the scenes. This kind of person most often doesn't want to be up front talking. They want to be behind the scenes. Just let me help. Let me serve. Let me go in the kitchen. Let me do the Martha thing right now because that's what's inside of me. So it's really about showing God's love by meeting the practical needs of people around you. So when we hear ministry, we think ministry like in the church. I want to be a minister. That's not the word that's used there. The word really is the word service or serving. That's what this is about. Number three, real quick, teaching. Teaching is the Greek word didasko. It carries the idea of persuasion and communication of knowledge and wisdom so as to instruct for life. In other words, this is not about just uh, gaining more knowledge. This isn't about trivial pursuit. This isn't about showing people how smart you are. This is about being willing to be a learner yourself so that you can grow in your faith walk with God and so that you can help others to learn and grow and to become better at walking this whole thing out. Uh, it's helping people to grow in their walk with God. Uh, it's liking to learn, but it's using that knowledge to help people to change and to grow on whatever level. So that very simply didasco. Uh, number four, exhortation. The Greek word is parakaleo. Parakaleo. And by the way, when I, when I thought about this, I went through all of these, I read them ahead of time, read them in different translations, all that kind of stuff. Um, when I heard the word exhortation, in my mind came the idea of a street preacher standing out on the corner with a sandwich board sign that said, turn or burn. And that is as far from the meaning of this word as you could possibly get. This word literally means, it comes from, uh, it says it's the Greek word parakaleo. Do you know another word, Greek word that might be like that? Paraclete. What, what does paraclete mean? Helper. One who comes alongside to help you. That's one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. So when you talk about exhortation, you're talking about somebody who's willing to come alongside to help somebody. It's willingness not to sit at your desk and to pass edicts. It's a willingness to get involved in the messiness of people's lives in order to help them, to offer them aid. It's not just a lecture. In fact, I think probably the best word that I could think of here in our modern verbiage is the word advocate. One who stands for another and helps. What is God doing here and how can I help you in the midst of that? Number five, uh, got to be a favorite of many people, especially if they're the recipient of it. It's the word giving. Metadinomai. Metadinomai. And most often we think of that as financial. I think of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give to him who has need. It's a, it's, it's a willingness to use all of your resources that God has given you, which would include your knowledge of other resources, to use all of that in order to help meet needs in people's lives. It's a gift of contributing whatever the need is, or another way of looking at it is it's a, a sharing. It's a sharing of yourself with other people. It might be financial, but it might not be financial. It might be something else. It, it, it might be you being willing to help them in different areas of their lives, whatever that might look like. Uh, maybe for you, uh, it has to do with um, you like to... Um, share uh, the knowledge you have about finances and you can help people with their budgets or whatever it might be. You know, it's like serving and giving kind of almost go hand in hand. You like to give of yourself and what God has given you in order to serve others. 
Uh, he says, by the way, to serve with liberality or to give with liberality. The word that's used for liberality actually means simplicity. It means not looking for recognition, not giving so that other people can see it. It's often doing it behind the scenes. And many of you are great at that. You're, you're really good. Uh, number six, it says lead, which is prohistomai. The best word that I could find for this word. We think of leadership as standing up front, being in charge. But that's not what the word means. The word means administrative. An administrator. Being able to take all of the pieces and put them together because they can see the whole better than other people can. It's like when they look at a picture. I don't know how many of you have ever done a, a picture, a puzzle. Uh, you look at a puzzle, and if you just look at the pieces, it's like you might find outer edges, all that, but you can't tell what it is until you look at the box top and you see what it's supposed to look like. That's what an administrative or a facilitator actually can see. They see the big picture, and they help everybody to put it together in a way that makes sense. Um, one of the things that was spoken over uh, Pastor Jonathan at his senior prophecy at Elam uh, by Stacy Klein is he said, I see you as someone who is able to listen to people, hear all of the different stuff, and put it together in a way that makes sense. That's a leader who helps to see the trees and the forest at the same time and how they all fit together. Uh, I think often about like the ingredients for a cake. I, I like cake. I don't know. Are we having cake today? Did I hear cake? I think I heard cake. I like cake. Uh, I like white cake with white frosting. Just I'm a simple person. I like cake. And I think I heard Sarah say cake. Yes, lots of cake. Um, but there are ingredients to the cake. I don't know what goes into a cake. Eggs, flour, sugar, vanilla. What do, I'm sorry, what was that? Baking powder? Is baking powder and baking soda the same? No, okay. And if you mix them up, it doesn't go well? Okay, what else? I'm sorry, did I hear something else? Water, carrots. Carrot cake. Oh, Lord. <sighs> All of those ingredients in themselves probably wouldn't work well unless you put them together and then applied heat. And then you have something that's worth eating called a cake. That's how I see this whole idea of administrative, uh, of leadership. Number seven, finally, and I think Paul purposefully ends with this one, mercy. Ella eo. Ella eo. It means to surround people with the passion or heart of God. That's literally what it means. Servers are like the major doers of the church, but mercy people are like the major feelers of the church. They're the people, it's like you come on the scene and the giver hears about the problem and they're going to throw something at it to help. The servers are going to come alongside and they're going to, all that stuff goes on. But the mercy people come and they just sit and say, I, I'm sorry, I, I weep with you. I feel what you feel. I think often about wives and husbands. You know, a wife wants to tell her husband all this stuff, and the first thing he wants to do is to solve it, to fix it, to make it right. I can fix this problem. I can get a whole thing. I can make up a chart. I can do it all. You, you got problems? I can, I can fix it. You got problems with this person who's just taking too much of your time? I can fix it. I can fix it. I'll block your phone. They can't get through you anymore. That's it. It's simple. There are solutions to every problem. But the wife's not looking for a solution. She's looking for you just to care. And that's kind of what mercy people are. They are feelers who come alongside. All of these people individually make sense. 
But when you put them together, you have exponential power within a church because together they reflect the heart or the DNA of the entire church. Now, all of these gifts are intended to reflect something of God's heart for people. And when you put them together and they work together, something happens. I started out with this very clear statement. Every single one of us have gifts. God has given us gifts. He's given you gifts. Something that he's put inside of you. And those gifts can change over time. Gifts can change because although you still have that thing within you, God actually grows something else in you. Because although many of these gifts are inbred in you, some of the other gifts he actually deposits at new birth. And he can do whatever he wants in any way. So at one point, serving might be the answer. In another time, it might be leadership. At another time, it might be giving. At another time, it might be mercy. What is the need at the time? And God has a whole big body to help meet that need. Would you stand with me? Oh, Lord Jesus. As is our custom on these fourth Sundays of the month, we set up, as these guys are going through, some kind of boards along the front that have letters on them. Each one has meaning. The boards are helps. Uh, each one has a different area of life, like H is healing. You might be here and you need healing in your body. You know, as you can see, P is prophecy, uh, L is life, E is encounter, S is salvation. Have I forgotten any? All of those are there. And we're going to put them up, and there's going to be teams of guys here that can pray for you if you would like prayer. Under any of these headings, they're going to be there for you if you would like to go directly to H because I need healing in my body or something going on. That's fine. <coughs> but here's what I want to ask of you. If you would, I would ask you that you would be willing to go just even very briefly. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Uh, the, the team knows that they're not here to show off. They're here to serve you, to help you, to stand with you. But maybe you would say, God, I know you've got a gift in here somewhere. I just don't know for sure what my gifting is. I'm, uh, separate from your talents or your skills, what is the gift that you put in me so that I could cause the body of Christ to be better, fuller, more what you want it to be? And I would ask you if you would be willing. Maybe you don't come for any of these ones. You come to any one of these and just say, I just want God to release the gifts in me. Whatever this gift is. I'm not even sure what it is. But I'm asking you to pray for me that God would help to show me what it is is my gift and how to walk in that. So all that's going to be available. So if the health team could make their way up right now, if you would. Thank you guys for being willing to serve. So again, if you need help in any of these areas, any of these letters, that's fine. Go for that reason. But if you're here and you say, I know there's got to be more to my life than just being saved and know I'm going to heaven. I believe God wants to use me for something. He wants to use the gifts that he's planted in me from birth on. I want to see it released in me. If that's something that's in your heart, as well as any of these other needs, I invite you to come and get prayer. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be drawn out. Just prayer to say, God, release that in me. I, I'm not useless. I might be getting older, but that doesn't mean my life's over. You can still use me. I might be young, and others maybe look at me and say, What do you have to offer? You're so young. But God, you gave me gifts. You put something inside of me. So any of that that is available to you, I would invite you to come and get prayer as you feel led. For the rest of you, if for whatever reason you choose not to, pray God's blessing upon you. Hopefully we'll see you back here at 4 o'clock for our inside 
church picnic. God bless you.